guys? How we doing? Wasn't last week a special Sunday? I don't know if you guys were with us. We baptized 49 people. It was just a great celebration. It was, uh, yeah, really neat. Some of you are like, I don't know. If you're going to clap, do it. But that was, that was weak. It, it was an exciting Sunday. Uh, just Usually that's the Sunday when people are visiting. They think we're a cult. Uh, but we're just, we're overwhelmed by with what God is doing in the lives of people. And we're pumped about that Sunday. We serve a great God. Amen. Amen. Uh, I want to double down on one of Andrew's announcements this Tuesday, a night of worship. Really encourage you to be there. That's such an important part of just who we are as a church. Uh, we want to be a people, a prayer for people, a people that worship God. So if you're able to make that, we'd love to see you here um, Tuesday night. Sound good? All right, we're going to get right to work because I bit off more than I can chew probably. We got 10 chapters to cover. Uh, so grab your Bibles. Uh, did somebody laugh at that? <laughs> What was, what was he thinking? I'm thinking the same thing. Like, what was I thinking? Uh, but we got 10 chapters. It's not normally how we handle working through a book of the Bible. We're taking some big chunks today, next week, and the next week. The next two weeks, we're going to look at the life of Joseph in some big chunks. But today, we got uh, 10 chapters where we're looking at the life of Jacob. Uh, and Jacob is an important character. You could argue that outside of God, he might be the most important character in the book of Genesis. Uh, he's given a lot of text, and then the, bur- the book then circles back to his death at the end. And this is where the Israelites get their name from this individual, what we'll see in our uh, story today. And I'm going to fly through uh, his life, kind of hitting some highlights, and we want to step back and think, okay, what can we learn looking at the, the big picture life uh, of, of Jacob? Particularly, there's two really kind of unique events in his life that highlight um, some lessons. And I think there's an important lesson on perspective that we get in the life of Jacob. And perspective is a point of view or an attitude towards something. Uh, And a perspective that you have in life or on life is huge in shaping who you are, how you live, how you treat people. Your perspective is a big deal. And there are a lot of different perspectives in this world. You're just coming off of Thanksgiving where you interacted with family, where you perhaps perhaps experienced a variety of perspectives. And there's different things that shape people's perspectives. The experiences that they've had or walked through their upbringing kind of shapes their perspective. But my question is, what should being a Christian do to your perspective? Like, how, how should being a Christian change the way you see the world, your kind of perspective on this life? And should Christians kind of have this shared perspective? And not not personality. There's a lot of different personalities. But should there be this kind of shared perspective from a Christian in our outlook on life? And if so, what is it? And do you have it? Because if your perspective is off, your life is off. Like it's that big a deal. Like if you if you kind of see the world and, it, and that the way you see the world is off, the way you live, the way you act, what you value, what's important to you is going to be off. Like if your perspective is off, then your life is off. And maybe your biggest problem, it's not your spouse or it's not your job or it's not your income or whatever. It's not your health. Maybe your biggest problem is your, is your perspective, that you're not seeing some things that you should see. And when we look at the life of Jacob, I think that's one of the things that jump out on us, that Jacob did not see some things that he should have seen. And if we can uh, learn from him, I think we're going to be better off for it. So I'm going to fly through and just tell you a lot of uh, the the story of the life of Jacob. I want to encourage you this week, go back and read it for yourself. Like you read these words. You're going to be better off if you read them yourself than just listen to me tell you about them. This Genesis 25 through Genesis 35. 
There's tons of stuff in there. We're just going to kind of go really fast looking at kind of an overview of his life. And then I want to kind of highlight, uh, go back and highlight a couple really unique uh, points in his life that I think we can learn from. So um, let's jump into it. Sarah, uh, if you guys remember, uh, Abraham's wife, Sarah, uh, had the promised child, Isaac. Is that like a, we good? Phone? Oh. <laughs> you totally called him out. He pointed like his right. <laughs> uh, you might have to deal with her later. She sold you out. <laughs> Nobody pointing fingers or anything. All right, so we got uh, Abraham uh, and, and Sarah, kind of these major characters, and they have this promised child, Isaac. Uh, and when we pick up in our, where we left off here in chapter 25, Sarah dies. Uh, and Abraham remarries, old guy, but still got some spunk. He remarries, um, and Isaac then finds a wife. Wonderful chapter on like maybe some insight on what to look for in a good wife. Maybe we'll do a podcast on that. Um, but Isaac finds a wife, Rebecca, uh, and as you get into chapter twenty-five, um, you, you got a you got a problem that that arises. You get an update on Abraham's two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. And you remember Ishmael? Okay. Right? He, he, Abraham tried to take matters into his own hands. Like this promise isn't unfolding the way I want it to. So he sleeps with his wife's servant Hagar. Like I'll speed things along. Makes a mess of everything. God comes back, doubles down. Like, no, you have a promised son through, through Sarah, your wife. It's going to be Isaac. Well, here's his two sons. You get an update on how they're doing. And, and Ishmael's doing great. He's got 12 sons. It's going well. Isaac has got zero. Rebecca, his wife, is barren and can't have kids, which seems like a threat to the promise. Like, they're supposed to be a great nation. They're supposed to multiply, yet she doesn't have any kids. Well, Isaac doesn't make the same mistake his dad did and find a servant to sleep with or a surrogate wife. Like, he's like, I lived through that. That was a mess. It made a mess of our family. Not going to do that. And instead, Isaac prays. And he prays for like 20 years. You got anything you're praying for right now? Yes, they persisted in that. Like he prays for 20 years that they would have a child. In fact, this is uh, verse 20. I don't think I have this one on the screen, but I'm going to read it to you. It says, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. It's like, did Rebekah have children because they're part of the promise and he's being faithful to his promise? Or did Rebekah have children because Isaac prayed for them? You betcha, right? It's both like your prayers matter, and God has a plan that's unfolding. Well, she becomes pregnant with twins, and it's a rough pregnancy. Anybody have twins in here that want to admit it in front of strangers? Okay, so this is a rough pregnancy. Here's what it says. The children struggled together within her. Literally, they smashed into one another. And, and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? Literally, like, why do I live what she's saying is, if this is the plan of God, why is it so tough? Why is it so painful? Why is it so hard? And we tend to have this thinking, what she had, if this is God's plan, then it should be smooth sailing. There should be no problem. But, but listen to me now. God's unfolding plan doesn't mean your comfort. It can often mean your discomfort. And she's saying, if this is God's plan, why is it so difficult? And she goes on, she, she said, she went to inquire of the Lord and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. 
Now, what's being said is there's, there's more going on than just what's going on inside of you. You got nations represented. And this is kind of symbolic of what's going to happen between these two people groups. But there's a prophecy. When it comes to these two kids, I want you to remember this as we look at his life. The older will serve the younger. Remember that as we keep going. So Rebecca gives birth to twins. Let me read that fun account for you. This is in 25. It says, when her days to give birth were complete, completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So you kind of get this description of like these, these boys are going at it throughout the pregnancy, kind of a rough battle. And even into birth, there's this race to the finish line because the first one gets the blessing and Jacob's holding on to the heel like he loses, but he's kind of fighting. And then you get this description of their personalities. And Esau's like this hairy, manly man hunter. And Jacob is more the indoorsy type, right? He's a mama's boy. And it says like they show favorites. like Esau... Notice this, it says, uh, Esau, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. It doesn't say that Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game and Rebekah loved Jacob. There's a contrast. Like the dad loved this one and the mom loved that one. And there's favoritism being showed. Now, Jacob's name means like uh, uh, to circumvent or to be a supplanter. Uh, he's a deceiver. He's a bit of a shyster. He's, he's, he's a trickster. And he lives up to this name. Here's the very next event that we read about these two boys. It's verse 29 of chapter 25. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Edom just means red. Now it could have been like skin color when he was born, he's red. It could have been the stew's red. We don't know, but he gets this, this nickname Edom, red. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die for what use is a birthright to me? Um, You wonder, he's coming in off a long hunt. He's tired. He's exhausted. He's hungry. And Jacob's like, sounds like a good time to do business. How many of you guys got like teenage boys that come in and they're hungry? You know, like that, they'll do anything at that point. Like, just give me some food. They're not thinking straight. He doesn't embrace this idea of delayed gratification. He's just in the moment. And all he can think of is, I'm hungry. I want to eat. And Jacob's like, we're going we're gonna to do some business now. How about you sell me your birthright for this pot of stew? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil. Now, the deal was just for the stew. But Jacob, being a charitable guy, is like throwing some bread. Complimentary. We'll get him some bread. It's like the first Olive Garden. Bread's on us. <laughs> and he ate and he drank and he rose and he went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now, birthright, for the oldest, we get a double portion. So if there's two boys, they would divide the inheritance three ways. And the oldest would get two-thirds and the youngest would get one-third. <clears throat> but this is more than just an inheritance. This is more than just money, land, goats. This is the family. 
Like this is the promised family. This is the one that is going to bring the Redeemer into the world. This is where, where God's going to make right of all the wrong. And the story ends by saying that Esau despised his birthright. That can seem like a threat to the promise. Like the one who uh, is, it should go to doesn't even care about it. And, and for us as readers, like Genesis 3 wasn't that long ago. Right? Genesis 3, it's like, are you already so comfortable in this broken world that you don't care about it? Like, you, you're not that interested in the redemption of, of all this brokenness? You'd just rather have some food? And Esau's making some, some bad decisions. In fact, the text goes on to say that he married a couple, not one, a couple of Hittite women, pagan Hittite women. And the text says that they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Anybody marry a son or a daughter off to somebody you didn't like? Maybe don't raise your hand. <laughs> Let's check. I really mess up. My in-laws are here, so they, they've never experienced that. Uh, <laughs> but Esau married these women, and Rebecca's like, I hate these women. Like, they just kind of, they just make a mess of life. They do, there's there's mother-in-law, daughter-in-law conflict. And you, you read this story, and you think, this is the family that God is working through to bring about his place? Like, it's a mess. All kind of dysfunction and deception going on. And it gets worse. Not only does Jacob try to deceive his brother for a birthright, Jacob and his mom try to deceive their dad. I'm telling you, you read Genesis, you're going to like your family better. So Jacob and his mom try to deceive their dad. Here's what happens. Esau, um, or excuse me, Isaac is getting old and he wants to give his blessing to Esau. Now, Isaac actually ends up living a lot longer after this, but he doesn't know that. He's losing his sight. He's getting old. So he wants to give his blessing to Esau. And Isaac tells Esau, hey, go hunting. Make up some of that food that I like. Let me refresh my soul with a good meal, and then I'll bless you. So he sends Esau off to do that. Well, Rebekah hears that plan, and Rebekah has her own favorite. So she goes to Jacob and says, well, here's what's going to happen. You're going, I'm going to cook a meal. You're going to take it to your dad, and you're going to pretend to be Esau. And Jacob's like, I don't, I don't think that'll work. Like, he's hairy. I'm smooth. Uh, it's not going to go on. She's like, trust me. Here's the plan. I'm going to make the meal. You put on some of Esau's clothes so that you smell like him, and put some goat fur on your, on your hands and your arms so you feel like him. And you read in this story, and you're like, really? Like, this is going to work? And he goes in there, and he's... He's lying to his dad. And even his dad is like, you sound like Jacob, but you feel like Esau. Let's just go with it. You're Esau, right? He's like, really? This worked? And he lies to his dad. He deceives his dad. And his dad gives him the blessing. And then he leaves. And not too much longer after, Esau comes back from his son with his meal prepared. And he goes in. It's like, here I am, dad. He's like, well, who are you? <laughs> I'm Esau. And now the lights come on. Well, if you're Esau, who was the guy I just blessed? And he's like, I've been duped, I've been tricked. And he's frustrated. And Esau is frustrated, right? How many of you would be frustrated if you were in Esau's shoes? How many of you will never raise your hand in church no matter what I ask? Because I think you're like, we would all say like, this, this guy got ripped off. Like, this is not fair. And Esau's like, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. And, and Rebecca, she comes and like, okay, here's how I'm going to manipulate the situation. I go to Isaac and be like, I am not having another one of my sons marry one of those Hittite women. So you need to send him back to the land of good women where I'm from, right? So go find my brother to, to, to find a wife. So 
Isaac sends Jacob away. And you see some generational sin here. Like, Jacob is a deceiver. Where do you think he learned that? Mom. Right? (laughs) I mean, you're teaching your kids, and you're teaching your kids things you don't even think you're teaching your kids. And as the story unfolds, you're like, well, where did Rebecca learn that? Her brother? Like, you're going to see he's a deceiver as well. And you got Abraham's family who's going to become this great nation, and he's only got two grandsons, and they don't like each other, and one of them wants to kill the other. This doesn't look good. In fact, it's, it's a reminder back in Genesis 3 and 4, you get this promise that a seed of Eve is going to come, and, and it's going to fix this, and then Eve has a seed. That's two, Cain and Abel. And Cain kills Abel. Now you're like, this doesn't look good. Like, this, there's a threat to the promise. And once you see this, it's really a theme throughout Scripture. God makes a promise. And in this broken world, there's always this threat to this promise. And God is constantly protecting his promise. He's like, no matter what happens, what I said is going to happen is going to happen. No, nothing and no one can undo what I said. And it's God over and over and over again protecting his promise. So when we sing songs like Great is His Faithfulness, that's what we're talking about. Our faithful God cannot be stopped. He will keep his word. Now, here's what happens. Jacob goes off to find Laban, his uncle, and on the way, he kind of spends the night at this place, and he has a dream. How many of you guys have heard of Jacob's Ladder? Okay, more people that would have been offended if you got lied to you by your brother, but that's to you. Jacob has this dream of the heavens opening up and a ladder descending from heaven to earth and angels ascending and descending on this ladder and the Lord Almighty on top kind of directing the show. And he's like, this God is alive, he's active, he's involved in what's going on in this planet. Now, that's a crazy story. And that's an important bit. In fact, Jacob names that place Bethel, like house of God. We're going to come back to that. So Jacob goes on, continues on. He gets to the land of Laban, his family. And the first person he sees of his family is Rachel. And he's like, I want that one. In fact, he just goes up and kisses her. It's really awkward. You should read the story. But he wants, and Laban's like, well, I got to marry her to somebody. Might as well be family. Again, different time. Uh, So he's like, all right, I'm going to work for her. So he works seven years. For Rachel, but Rachel has a sister, an older sister, Leah, and Rachel's good looking, and Leah's not. Now, I'm not body shaming, that's in the Bible, it's just what it says. Um, and at the night of the wedding, I don't know if it's a big celebration, big ceremony, he's drunk, whatever, but when he wakes up the next day, he's not laying next to Rachel, he's right next to Leah. And he's like, this is not what I signed up for, right? He goes off to find Laban, he's like, you tricked me, he's got a taste of his own medicine. And Laban's like, listen, that's not our custom to marry the younger one before the older one. Why don't you work another seven years and then you can get Rachel? Now, can you imagine how Leah felt? My husband doesn't even want me. Like, Rachel's always getting the attention. I mean, everybody wants Rachel. My dad had to trick somebody into marrying me. Imagine how she felt. Jealous of her sister. Well, Jacob works another seven years. He gets Rachel. But then they start having a family. And Leah's having kids, but Rachel's not. So now Rachel is jealous of Leah. See, on one hand, Leah's jealous of Rachel, but on another hand, 
Rachel's jealous of Leah. And it's just all kinds of just deception and insecurities and jealousies. It's just a dysfunctional family. But God is with Jacob, and he's blessing Jacob, and he's being prosperous as a, as a shepherd for Laban. Laban knows it, and he's like, listen, I know that I'm doing well because you're here and God's with you. But Jacob eventually has a call from God to go back to his homeland. Well, getting away from his father-in-law is a little awkward. There's some sh- shady stuff going on, some trickery that's happening. Um, they eventually kind of just flee. Uh, Rachel steals her dad's household gods. So now it's like, wait a second, you're not even faithful worshipers of God. What's going on here? And then Laban and his people kind of catch up with them, kind of an awkward confrontation. They eventually make a treaty, and then they go their separate ways. Now, what's building up is this reunion with his brother Esau. Like, this is what's coming. Now, the last time that he saw Esau, what went down? Yeah, Esau wanted to kill him. So he's a little nervous going into this event. So he's, what is he doing? He's sending gifts ahead of him. Like, hey, let's get, let's get ahead of this problem. Let Esau know how happy I am to see him. Like, kind of smooth the waters because I don't know how this is going to go. So he sends servants with all kinds of gifts. And the servants come back. And it's like, oh, yeah, Esau, he's excited to see you. He's coming with 400 men. <laughs> yeah, how do you feel about that? So he's a little nervous. And he sends his family kind of across this river, and he stays the night at this place by himself. And that night, all through the night, he literally wrestles God. And you're kind of like, wait, what? That's a unique thing in somebody's history and their storyline. So we're going to come back to that. Um, But the next day, he goes and he reconciles with his brother, which is a twist in the story, because you don't see that coming. It's not the, the meeting you anticipate. You anticipate conflict. Like, they're, this is not going to go well. But what happens is he runs to see Esau. He falls down crying. Esau and, and Jacob embrace, and they hug. They introduce their family. And you're kind of like, wait, where did this come from? Because on one hand, in, in Hebrew, Jacob's name means supplanter. He's a deceiver. He's a trickster. But in Hebrew, it can also be translated, may, may God protect. And both are true in Jacob's story. He is this deceiver, this supplanter. He's this kind of shyster of a guy, and yet God is protecting him. God is with him. God is treating him better than he deserves. And what's that called, church? Grace. You see God's hand of protection with Jacob despite his kind of deception in his life. And things are beginning to unfold in a unique way. Well, he doesn't, that, that reunion doesn't last long. So they go their separate ways, and then Jacob goes to settle in the land of Canaan, in an area where a guy named Hamar ruled and his son Shechem. Now Shechem was really into one of Jacob's daughters, Dinah, so much so that he raped her. Now rich boy Shechem gets his dad to go talk to Jacob. And it's like, my son is really into your daughter. You're like, no kidding, right? But he wants to marry her. Now Jacob is fearful, like he's more the indoorsy type. His boys are out in the field. He's outnumbered. So he agrees to this marriage. But he says, but all of you have to be circumcised. Not just Shechem, but like all the men of your clan need to be circumcised if we're going to intermarry. And Shechem's like, I really like her, Dad. <laughs> I can't imagine being like Shechem's cousin. How much do you like her? Like, like her, like her? Like, what are we, how committed are we? <laughs> but they all get circumcised. And two of Jacob's boys wait uh, till after the circumcision and everybody's kind of resting up. And they go and they kill all the men of that clan. 
And now Jacob is like, what are you doing to me? Like, you're not helping me in this land. Now I'm an enemy. Like, you're making things difficult to me. Why did you go and do this? And the boys are like, because they treated our sister like a prostitute. Like, what are we supposed to do? They sought, they sought vengeance, but Jacob was kind of torn in there. And now he's like, we can't live here anymore. Like, we're, we're enemies in this land. We, we have to move. And he moves back to Bethel, that place where he had that dream with God. And there's a, there's a kind of repentance in that moving back. Um, there's a time where he makes his family put away their false gods and they go back. And when they get back, God repeats his promise. This is what he says at the end of chapter 35, in the middle. He says, God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. God repeats his promise, and it's really significant because no matter how chaotic it gets, no matter how much dysfunction there is, no matter how much rebellion there is, God is faithful to his promise, and he's going to see it through. Now, that's kind of a a quick flyover of the the life of Jacob. Go back and read it for your own, but I want to highlight two important events in his life, kind of uh, these two miraculous moments where God, in a very special, unique way, kind of uh, drops in on the life of Jacob. And what do these two events have in common? What are they teaching us that we can learn from the life of Jacob? And the first one is this dream, this ladder from heaven to earth, this connection, these angels ascending and descending, this God who's involved. And Jacob has this dream. And after this dream, there's a very telling line, not only for the moment, but it kind of sums up Jacob. And this is what he says. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And I did not know it. This Jacob. It's like, what do you mean you didn't know it? Abraham's your grandpa. Isaac's your dad. I mean, the experiences they had with the Lord, the close, and you didn't know it? How did you not know this? Like you are somebody who knows God. You just are surprised by the reality of God. Like you ever know those people who are really religious, but it's just not real? Like you grew up in church. You know all the stories. It's just when you look a little bit closer, it's like, but you don't love God. You don't really trust God. You're not a worshiper of God. And this is where Jacob is at. You think, why did, why did, what did he get this dream? Like, what is God trying to teach Jacob in this dream? Like, you need to wake up to the reality of me. I'm alive, I'm faithful, I'm active, I'm connected to this earth, I'm at work here in my unfolding plan. And you don't see it, you don't get it. It's like, surely the Lord is this place. And I, I didn't know it. Jacob would have claimed to believe in God, but he didn't act like he believed in God. He didn't trust God, he didn't depend on God, he didn't worship God. All he saw was his circumstances, and I'm on the run, and I got all these difficulties, and my brother wants to kill me, and what he needed to see was God is faithful, he's present, and he's active, and he can be trusted. But he didn't see it. Wouldn't it be a sad thing to go through life unaware of the presence and faithfulness of God? Like, you're just doing your thing. You're just going to work, going to soccer practice, getting groceries, paying bills, and you're just completely oblivious to this connection between heaven and earth. And the activity between that and a faithful God who rules over it and is involved in his creation and has an unfolding plan that he's carrying out. Like, wouldn't it be a sad thing to go through life just oblivious to that? And when God in this dream, he's trying to wake Jacob up to this. Because is that you? 
Are you just kind of oblivious to the presence and the faithfulness and the activity of God? Or do you have a God perspective? Like despite the chaos and the, the tough circumstances, do you see an active God, a faithful God? Here's a phrase I want you to memorize. This is some application for you. Um, this is a phrase I want you to memorize. It's the first part of Jacob's statement. Surely the Lord is in this place. Surely the Lord is in this place. And I want that phrase to be like a tool for you in following Jesus. Like a tool in your toolbox to get out. Like Paul talks about the armor of God. If you're going to follow Christ, here's, here's the armor of God. There's weapons. There's tools that we need to know how to use to be faithful in following God. Like I'm not a handy person, but I, I help out handy people sometimes. And they have a toolbox and they got tools in there. It's like, I don't even know what that is. I don't know how to use it. I don't like, but they have a tool for everything, right? Well, when it comes to faith, it seems like so many people, so many Christians at church don't know how to use the tools given to them to be faithful followers of Christ. And I want you to see this as like a tool in your toolbox. And if that's the case, how do we use this tool? What, what is the phrase uh, helpful for? Why, why did this dream come to Jacob? Or more, if we want to know how to use the tool, we should ask, when did this dream come to Jacob? When did God remind Jacob of his active presence and faithfulness? Not after he just tricked his dad and finally got the blessing. It wasn't at that moment where Jacob was like, surely God is in this place. I got away with it. He fell for it. I got the blessing. It wasn't after he worked seven years for Rachel and was like, surely God is in this place. I got my wife I wanted. No, he had this dream when he was on the run for his life from his brother who he thought was going to kill him. That's when he was reminded of the faithful presence of God. So listen, church, when you can't see it, when you can't feel it, you need to be reminded of it. This could be like a phrase you repeat to yourself. Surely the Lord is in this place. Or let's make it more personal. Surely the Lord is in this marriage. I don't feel it. I don't see it. But I believe he's active and faithful. Surely the Lord is in this diagnosis. I mean, I don't see it, I can't feel it, but, but surely we have a faithful, active, present God. Surely the Lord is in this job. I don't even like it, I don't, but, but surely God is up to something and he's working and he's active. Like This is the perspective we have as believers. God is a faithful, active God. And we know it. We know it. This is not a God-forsaken world. This is not a God-forsaken marriage. It's not a God-forsaken job. It's not a God-forsaken season of life. God is active and he's working. Now, sometimes you need more than just a dream or a story to gain that perspective. And that brings us to our next kind of uh, unique event where God inserts himself in a special way in the life of Jacob in this wrestling match. Because it's like, maybe I didn't get your attention in that dream. So we're going to, I'm going to rough you up a bit, right? Because you can be told something and you can be told something, right? And he told Jacob something in a dream. It's like, you didn't get it. So I'm going to come down and I'm going to tell you face to face. Right? And there was a scuffle. There was a wrestling match with God. And guys, by the grace of God, would he rough some of us up to wake us up to who he is? Now, in the text, you see this story play out where it just says a man wrestled with Jacob until the break of day. He doesn't realize it's God until the end. But it doesn't mean it's like an equal match. It's not like God's like, or Jacob's thinking, two more hours, and I would have had him, Right? It's not an equal match. I think of like when I wrestled Rudy. Like this is my, my youngest daughter. I can hold her forehead. She just swings aim. It's like we check around. But 
It's just, a, it's an ongoing scuffle. And there's no, it's not, it's not an even match, but they're, they're wrestling. In fact, at the, towards the end, God just touches his hip and it comes out of socket. From this day on, Jacob walks with a limp. And once he realizes who he is, he realizes how gracious he was to him. It's like, oh, I was wrestling with God and, you, and I'm still alive? Oh, have, oh how, how gracious you've been to me. And he clings to him for this blessing. But a part of the story is not knowing who he's wrestling. Like, that's an important part of the story. Just like he had this dream, and surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. And here he's wrestling God, and he doesn't know it. And you might think, how could you wrestle somebody all night and not know who it is? And guys, that's the point. That's the problem. Jacob, how how are you missing this? That's Jacob's issue. It's been his problem. He doesn't see God. He doesn't acknowledge God. He doesn't see the faithfulness and the presence of God. He thinks this whole time he's been wrestling with his brother, or he's been wrestling with his dad, or he's been wrestling with his father-in-law. But really, his struggle has been with God. His real struggle this whole time is you're not trusting God. You're not acknowledging God. You don't see God. You don't see his faithfulness. Listen to me. This is what I want you to remember when it comes to a perspective. See a God who is at work to be a person who is at peace. See a God who is at work to be a person who is at peace. Jacob was not at peace. He was striving. He was manipulating. He was um, trying to control the outcome. But he was not at peace because he did not see a God who was at work. So he put it on himself to do it all. Because remember, Jacob was blessed before he was even born. Remember that prophecy? Before he was even born, he had the favor of God. This is how Paul put it in Romans 9. He says this, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, had done nothing, good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Jacob had the favor and blessing of God before he was even born. He hadn't done anything good or bad. But he didn't see it. He tried to trick his brother for a blessing. He tried to trick his dad for a blessing. He tried to wrestle God for a blessing. He already had. He just couldn't see it. He was striving. He was tricking. He was manipulating. He was self-sufficient. And I'll say it again. Isn't it really sad to go through life unaware of the presence and faithfulness of God? Isn't it really sad to go through life unaware of the grace of God and the favor of God? Isn't it a sad existence to strive to try to prove your significance when the whole time you are loved by God? And this is, a, this is an important story for the Israelites. We told you, like, the original audience for this book is the nation of Israel. Well, this is where they get their name. This, this story, this is where God changes Jacob's name to Israel. And it's meaningful to them. And when it happens matters. Just like when the dream happened matters. Because God didn't change Jacob's name to Israel after he tricked his dad and got the blessing. Like, it worked. I'm so proud of you. This day forward, you are Israel. He didn't change his name to Israel after he worked seven years and finally got the wife he wanted. Conqueror, this day forward, you are Israel. No, he got his name changed. 
And the nation of Israel got their name after Jacob got his lunch handed to him by God. And he was made a cripple for the rest of his life. Now that's significant. Because Israel, the nation, if you're going to go in and take this promised land, you're not going to do it on your own. You're not going to manipulate your way into it. You're not going to trick anybody to take it. You're going to do it being dependent upon me. And if you're going to walk in and take this promised land, you better do it with a limp. You better do it with a limp. See, up until this point, Jacob had been so self-sufficient, taking things into his own hands. But after this, he walked with a limp. He had an ongoing reminder of his weakness. And church, hear me now. If necessary, God will cause you to walk with a limp in order to improve your walk with him. You hear that? If necessary, God will cause you to walk with a limp in order to improve your walk with him. See, this is who you need to be. You need to be somebody who sees your weakness, sees your dependence, sees, sees God's faithfulness. See, at the beginning of the story, Jacob was clinging to Esau. I'm going to be first. By the end of the story, he's clinging to God. Because true blessing doesn't come through birth order. True blessing doesn't come through your father's inheritance. True blessing comes through God. Or you even look at Leah and Rachel in the story. The text says that they wrestled among each other. Jealousy, envy. But true significance for them and their blessing doesn't come through how you look. It doesn't come through what your husband thinks of you. It doesn't come through how many children you have or don't have comes through God. God's the giver of blessing. He's the giver of significance. Is that your perspective? Like, do you see that? Do you know that your significance is not going to come through the job that you have, the family that you have, the achievements that you have, the bank account that you have? It's going to come through God. God is the giver of significance. Do you see that? Is that the perspective you have in life? Or are you chasing other things? Because if you don't have that perspective, there are some things that you should see in life that you won't see. And if you don't see them, you're not going to handle the things in your life the right way. Because you look at the situation. Jacob, the night before he meets his brother, he gets this frustrating interruption from this seemingly adversary. It's a stressful night. I'm about to see my brother who I think wants to kill me. If God is going to show up, I think I'd like a hug, maybe a pat on the back. I'm with you. This is going to be all right. Instead, he gets an all-night fight. He gets an all-night fight, but it ended up being God at work leading to his blessing. And what if for you, whatever you're wrestling with, whatever you're going through that you're frustrated by, that you don't want to deal with, what if it's God at work? And it's for your good. Could you see that? I mean, maybe going through it will give you a limp. But it'll give you a closer walk with God. You'll trust him more. You'll depend on him more. You'll treasure him more. And you'll be better off for it. But do you have the perspective to see that? 
the challenges in marriage, the frustrating job, the difficult financial situation, in the midst of that, even when he's on his run, can, can you see that there is a connection between heaven and earth, and there is an active, faithful God that is overseeing it all. And he will work all things for the good of those who love him and called according to his purposes. Do you have that perspective? And church, if you need help with that perspective, what is the perspective that the cross gives you? It's, it's a symbol of suffering. And it's where we find our blessing. If you're, listen to me now, if you are a Christian, look no further than the cross. It's where we get our limp. Nobody can look at the cross and feel really good about themselves. It's a declaration that you are a sinner in need of rescue. Church, it's where we get our limp. And it's also where we get our closer walk with God. Because it's through the cross that we're redeemed back to our Heavenly Father. How great is the faithfulness of our God. Church, He can be trusted no matter what you're going through. He is active and He is in control. And even if you need to be roughed up and given a limp to get that, He loves you so much He will do that. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you in our songs, in our singing, in our giving, in our serving. It just all wants to be a big declaration that we love you. But we can only say that because you first loved us. You came to us. You gave us favor before we were even born, before we'd done anything good or bad. I pray that you would give us a perspective that sees a living, active, faithful God. That we'd be a people at peace, not striving on our own to, to just control the outcome, to find our value in lesser things, but we would be at rest knowing you're in control and you can be trusted. I pray that it would be true of us as a church. No matter what circumstances we go through, that our confidence in you would be strong, that we trust you, that we believe in you, and we've seen your faithfulness time and time again. You are truly a God worthy of praise. For this in your name, amen.